Have you been zombified by influences from your peers and kind of seeing what other people are doing around you and feeling like you just have to copy them? I don't, I don't know. Have you, is that, is or like, should I? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, have I, like, have you been influenced <laughs> I mean, by your peers? If, if you're being influenced, then, then I'll give it a try, but I don't, <laughs> <laughs> is it cool? Like, uh, <laughs> so. I, I, th- I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I'm being zombified isn't always bad, you know? <laughs> That's true. Actually, that is we do actually talk about today. It's pretty cool to be influenced by your peers. So yeah, um, it can also be really bad. I mean, if you're, it's a question of what are your peers doing? Are they doing good things? Then maybe it's good. Are they doing bad things? Then maybe it's bad. But you know what I love though about this episode with Robert Frank is he kind of turns it around on its head. So it's not just you know how are you being influenced by your peers, but how are you in your good or bad behaviors influencing others. Oh, that's true. So I should have answered that question differently. I should have said, yes, Athena, I am being zombified by peer influence and you should too, right? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I got it. I'm getting it down. So (laughs) so we have a totally amazing guest for this show. Robert Frank, who is an economist at Cornell, has written so many amazing books about uh, you know, topics that kind of range from like arms races of consumption where people are kind of like trying to keep up with the Joneses and it gets them into like these states where they're doing things that don't even really make sense um, to, you know, thinking about um, how our like even the way that we make decisions is influenced by, you know, emotions and also sort of, you know, standard kind of decision-making issues. But he's just, he's amazing. And I have been a big fan of his work for decades. I mean, I was reading his books in college. And so when I saw he had this new book about um, peer influence and that he wanted to be on our podcast, Dave, I was so excited. (laughs) Yeah. I was so excited that he wanted to be on our podcast. Well, I think of him as the uh, the prisoner's dilemma guy, right? I'm like, oh, it's the prisoner's dilemma guy. Because I think that that is a thing that I, I don't know, growing up with a psychologist father, that's like a thing you hear before bed is about the prisoner's dilemma. And then when I was like, oh my gosh, we're actually talking to, you know, the guy who... I guess yeah. invented it, and so yeah. Well, he did a experimental study where he kind of used the um, prisoner's dilemma paradigm with people, and right. so so yeah. So that I think yeah. Was I didn't I didn't think he had actually like sold out his co-authors, and now they're all serving twenty years. But. <laughs> <laughs> But he looks at like social traps and he looks at the ways that sort of sometimes the things we want aren't always the best for the group. Right. Um, Which is like, I don't know. It's super cool. I mean, it's, it's not super cool for society, but it's super interesting. Yeah. Well, and also if you're trying to figure out like, should you buy a house? Where should you buy a house? You know, we talk about all sorts of things that are practical in this episode, not just like abstract economic theory. Yeah. I mean, right. So it does, it does, it boils down to this sort of idea of, should I buy a bigger house if my friends are buying a bigger house and I want to look, I want to keep up with them, right? Um, Or should I try to then convince them to buy smaller houses or 
Or change tax policy to incentivize everyone to build Uh, smaller houses. Yeah, that's much better than what I was going to (laughs) suggest. Not that there's anything wrong inherently with big houses, but, you know, the point is, like, if everybody is competing with everybody on the size of their houses, then, you know, it's kind of this runaway process where everyone just invests more and more in competing and then never gets anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then we burn through money, it turns out, and, uh, which is not that fun. So that's right. um, But, uh, yeah. So, and the, the money burning, it creates a lot of, you know, greenhouse gases too. So it's, uh, so, so now the thing is, I do feel like we introduced him, but we didn't introduce ourselves. So now I'm feeling really jealous of him and I think we should keep up with him and give ourselves an introduction. (laughs) That's a very good point, Dave. So everybody, I'm Athena Actipus. I'm a psychology professor at ASU, and I am your host today of Zombified. That's right. And I am your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, and I am the media outreach program manager at Arizona State University. And I am a brains and um, social comparison enthusiast. (laughs) So am I. Yeah, <laughs> we we measure we measure each other's brains, and we measure our guests' brains before every show. And then, uh, you know, if if it turns out we have a guest on who's got a bigger brain, then I show up in a giant hat just so they can't. <laughs> so, got to keep yeah. up. Oh. Yeah, but you know, regardless of how big they are, we've always got fresh ones, always fresh brains. That's kind of our thing. Yeah. Um, and so, well, shall we uh, jump into devouring Robert Frank's brains? Yes, certainly. Let's hear from this week's most delicious fresh brain, Robert Frank. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do I'm not trying to be over-analytical Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be But something else is taking over me All right, Uh, so first of all, Robert... Thank you so much for being with us here today to talk about zombification and peer influence and how it relates to like what's going on with us right now in this bizarre moment that we're all in. (laughs) Would you um, just tell us a little bit about who you are and what brought you to this topic? Uh, It's my pleasure to be with you, Athena. Uh, What brought me to this topic is, uh, oh, I've for many decades been studying how What some people buy influences what others feel they need. That was probably my first uh, foray into this area. And it turns out that uh, most people think about uh, that in in terms of this locution you often hear, keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, But it's not really about that fundamentally. I think uh, for me, the, the, the revelatory experience of my lifetime was the time I spent in Nepal as a Peace Corps volunteer. I was there for two years in a small village. Uh, Nepal at the time was the poorest country on earth, uh, at least according to the data we had. 
And uh, while I was there, I lived in a two-room house. It didn't have any electricity or any running water. And it seemed a little bit strange the first day or two. Uh, but after that, it seemed utterly and completely normal. Hmm. Uh, in, in that context, uh, it was a house that met every need that I might have thought to have for a house that I was living in. You know I, what it makes me think of is there's this country song with this line like, Everything you need and nothing that you don't. Yeah, but uh, but what you need is quite elastic. Uh, and so uh, if if I were to live in a house like that here in Ithaca, New York, or, or in Tucson, or in Phoenix, or, or in any American city, uh, it would not seem like an okay house. Uh, I think I'd be uh, absolutely embarrassed for people to see where I lived. It would be a... a a screaming signal that I had failed to live up to even the minimal demands of social existence. Uh, <laughs> and so I think once you see that, that local context matters in that way, then it's just a simple step to see that uh, what you feel you need depends on what other people around you are spending. So, so we, we know in, in the U S for example, that, Last year, or, the, or I guess 2018 is the year for which I have the most recent data, uh, the average wedding in the U.S. cost $36,000. It had been in real terms, in inflation-adjusted terms, only $11,000 in 1980. So that's a, a more than threefold wow. increase. And why did it go up so much? Well, uh, what happened was that during the intervening years, most of the income growth went to people at the top. We've, we've talked about that in many forums. Uh, and so the rich do what everybody else does when they get more money. They spent more on celebrations of special occasions. They built bigger mansions. They did what everybody does when they get more money. They spend more. And it's not that uh, people in my income bracket are trying to emulate the wedding receptions of the rich. No, that, that's not really even an option. But there's a group near the rich, just below them. They go to the same weddings. Uh, now maybe they feel it's necessary to have their own daughter's wedding at home. Uh, uh, and they need a ballroom to, that can accommodate an orchestra. So they build bigger. And then the group just below them needs a dining room that can accommodate 18, yeah. not 12, uh, and it cascades all the way down, but it, I it, love that, it that feels movie. normal. Um, have you seen Father of the Bride? No, no. So there's a scene, you know, kind of at the beginning where she says she wants to have the wedding at home and her, her dad has this imagination, you know, the Steve Martin character of like, you know, barbecuing outside and like a bride burger and a groom burger, right? <laughs> but actually what they're talking about is moving all the furniture out of their house, setting up a huge tent and having an insane uh. occasion, right? So um, yeah, the idea of like, you know, a wedding at home is something that can sound quaint, but then actually can be, um, you know, an opportunity to show off, you know, just how much you can transform your house with money and labor. Um, it's a totally different kind of thing. And, and it's not really, uh, in, in most cases, about showing off. Uh, some, some people are trying to show off, yes, of course, but mo most of the time it's just like uh, families taking every reasonable step they can think to take to feel sure that when the guests go home, they'll be happy that they had a, a good, a good experience at this celebration. And, 
And if you spend half as much as everybody else does, then they're going to leave thinking that you didn't understand how important the day was somehow. Mm. Uh, so for but you, nobody's you're... any happier when everybody spends three times as much. You know, the the, <laughs> right. the people getting married in 1980 were just as happy spending a third as much as the people today are spending three times that amount. Yeah. So, so for you, your sort of journey to studying this phenomenon really started with the time you spent in the field as part of the Peace Corps. But now um, you take quite an academic approach to these issues, right? Oh, I don't know if I've ever taken uh, a strictly academic approach to, to anything. I, I, <laughs> I feel like I've been incredibly lucky in my career to be able to spend most of my time, you know, there's a certain amount of stuff you can't avoid as an academic, but most of the time I spend on my own uh, research interests are, are really thinking about questions that occur to me in the, in the process of living my life day by day. You know, if I see something that doesn't make sense to me, I puzzle over it and, and think about it and try to explain it. And that's, that's led me down some interesting paths, but, uh, you know, that I, I consider that a, a huge stroke of good fortune to have been able to make a living doing that. That's awesome. Are, are there some like topics that, uh, have fascinated you like through your career that you haven't had the chance to really pursue to the extent that you want yet? Like, do you have like a you know, a box somewhere of all sorts of ideas that you're ready to jump into when you have the time and energy? Oh, I have a few things still left on my list. Uh, when I was a, a young boy growing up in South Florida, I uh, got the job of being the ball boy for uh, the team that was then the Brooklyn Dodgers, and of course, the Los Angeles Dodgers now. They used to, uh, in those days, in the mid-50s, spend 10 days in Miami playing an exhibition series. Uh, and so uh, as the ball boy, uh, it was my job to retrieve the foul tips that were uh, fouled back onto the screen behind home plate and give them to the umpire when he ran out of balls, things like that. But what I noticed during that experience was that the clubhouse manager for the team would sit in the clubhouse during the games and sign baseballs. He would contort his hand into all different angles and uh, he would finish and you would take the ball that he had worked on. You could not, or I could not in, at any rate, tell the difference between the, the 25 signatures he had put on the ball, uh, one for each of the players on the active roster, <laughs> and the balls that had actually gotten passed around to the players, they were absolutely visually identical to my eye. And so it was interesting. I mean, the more important people got the, the real balls, the ones that the players had signed. Uh, other people got the balls that the, the simulacra, uh, the, the ones that the clubhouse manager had signed. And, and it was intriguing to me then, and still something I think about, uh, was one ball really more valuable than the other? Uh, you know, if they were, they probably weren't exactly the same, but uh, we now know that there are some processes that can produce essential duplicates of things that are highly valuable. So there are ways of uh, manufacturing diamonds now that produce crystals that are every bit uh, as desirable, according to all the things at any rate that people say they care about in diamonds, as stones that are mined from the earth. And, and experienced jewelers with a loop to their eye can't tell the difference one from the other. Uh, 
is there any reason that the stones that come from the earth should command a premium? Uh, what happens when this new manufacturing technique becomes widely available and we can make diamonds for $2 a carat rather than uh, $10,000 a carat? Will, will diamonds any longer command a premium in, in, in that situation? Uh, my own hunch is, is that they will not. Uh, uh, there, you know, people argue about this. Uh, if, if there's a, a robot that can duplicate a painting by what, by a master so that nobody could tell without an x-ray machine, is the, is the original as valuable as it would have been when that couldn't happen? So, so the, the, the question I think I'd like at some point to pursue is where will value ultimately reside as we develop more and more ways of cloning these things that used to be scarce? So well, it's almost like this kind of issue of authenticity, right? Just like authenticity. Is there some intrinsic value for something to be the real thing versus something identical to the real thing, but, yes. you know, was, did not originate? In yeah, the that's, the, that's the exact question. And I think uh, ultimately there will always be things that are scarce, uh, things that can't be copied. And I think as we're able to copy more and more of the things that are currently scarce that command value by virtue of their scarcity, value will gradually migrate away from those things to the things that can't be copied. So, and what those are, what are their properties, where do we find them, uh, how will competition evolve once we get a clearer sense of what they are, those are all questions I think it'd be fun to think more deeply about. I'm, I'm, I'm not really focused on that yet, but it's something I hope to be able to spend some time on. So, so just going back to the baseballs real quick, because I think that also it's ties in with the keeping up with the Joneses thing a little bit, that there's, there's a social value, right? Like the baseballs that the players sign aren't going to, you're probably not going to want to hit them or play baseball with them. So they're arguably a worse baseball for, for the purpose of a baseball but they show somebody who was really high status took the time to think about me right whereas <laughs> the the other one not so much well that's um, if you that's if you know which is which right if you if you can't tell which is which then it's it's difficult to maintain that distinction right that's true because i guess then they could also give the ball to the player to give to people even if the player didn't sign it and then the person might have the so the story of oh I got this ball from right Mickey so so maybe so. in the future the scarce thing is the willingness of the baseball player to have a Zoom meeting with you, uh, right or 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 something that is certifiably scarce when the other thing is no longer uh, identifiably scarce. Yeah. yeah, it ties in very much with kind of the evolutionary literature about signaling, right? And honest signaling and that you kind of, you need things that have that reliability and fidelity for them to yes. stay as honest signals. Yeah. They've got to be costly to fake. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The, cool. The, the toads croak at one another when they square off uh, at nighttime, each one, each male wanting the same female and the one with the deeper croak generally uh, is deemed the winner without a fight. Uh, why fight with a, a toad that's bigger than you are since he'll beat you and, and, and injure you in all likelihood. And, and that works only because deep croaks uh, are not possible to utter unless you're really bigger than the other, other animal. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a credible signal. Yeah. And I, I so, guess, oh, 
I was, Go ahead, Dave. I, just going to say, I feel like, I guess when I'm thinking about these baseballs, neither one of them are quite credible, right? Because they're both sort of conveying this idea of, hey, I'm friends with, you know, Gonzo or whoever I've got the baseball signed by, but that might not be the case, right? You still can't call the person up and say, hey, you want to come play baseball with me, even if you have the ball with the real signal, like the real in-group signal. So, um yeah, what does it even mean to have a baseball that a baseball player signs? Kind of what you're saying. <laughs> right. And I, I just yeah. wonder how much of that also plays into these big weddings, right? Are we trying to are we are we trying to con what are we trying to convey like with those big weddings? Um because cause for some reason the baseball one makes the most sense to me, where I'm like, all right, I'm trying to convey that I'm friends with this guy who people look up to. With the weddings like, what is the social need that we're trying to convey by spending that money and by? I, keeping I, up? I think the the intent is innocent in most cases. People just want the guests to leave feeling like they had a good day. Uh, they want them to be happy. They want them to feel like they helped our daughter celebrate her her wedding uh, with us. And and if you if you rent out a, a a dilapidated venue and you serve bad food and you have wilted flowers, people won't leave with that feeling. Uh, you've got to, to meet the standard of that time and place in order for people to be able to relax and have a good time and, and even uh, engage in the process in the way you hope. And so I think uh, it, from there, it's just a simple matter that things escalate imperceptibly one step at a time. And and people end up spending more each year. Uh, and, and I think the prime mover in the case of the wedding expenses was the fact that people who were very wealthy, who were getting such big in income gains in, in recent decades, had so much more to spend that that was a natural way for them to, to escalate. Uh, it, it wasn't with any intention to make it harder for other people to celebrate their, their own kid's wedding adequately, but that was the practical consequence of it. Yeah. Everybody just wants to have a big party and have fun and enjoy the companionship of the people who they're close to. Right. And, and you can say, well, you, if you're if you're really uh, clever about it, you don't need to really spend a lot of money. You can have a great party on, on the cheap. Uh, and if you're really creative, that's obviously uh, an option open to you. But that's not an op option that's open to everybody. You know, half of all people are less creative than average. So so at some point. <laughs> Uh, the, yeah. the, the, the mean moves up. So I, I think there's also just a, an interesting kind of, um, segue here for us to talk a little bit about, um, what is changing now, right? Because we're talking about these big celebrations. It's been a long time since anybody in the United States have ha has had a big wedding, right? Because of the situation with the, you know, novel coronavirus. And so, when we think about like how our our lives now are being influenced by these kinds of dynamics of you know people copying what they see others doing it is a a really new kind of landscape of how we're being influenced by others isn't it yeah we we're not re really in the physical presence of others in quite the same way that we used to be but we're still uh able to to you know, see what people do through other media. And, and so I think we're, we're still aware of what other people are, are doing. And, and so that 
does shape expectations about what people like us normally do. And so we're influenced by it nonetheless. Yeah. So are there negative consequences? What are the consequences of of these sort of ways we're being influenced? You know, let me be quick to say that on balance, it's a good thing that we take cues from what others say and do. The, The world is in incredibly complex, it's uncertain, it's threatening. Uh, I know very little about it personally, Uh, so do you know very little about it. Uh, Collectively though, we all know quite a bit about it. And if we see somebody confidently doing something unfamiliar uh, and and we don't know what to do, I I think if you didn't have an impulse at least to, to investigate whether that's something you ought to be doing too, you'd be very ill-equipped to make your way in the world. Uh, so, so, of course, we have a, uh, an impulse to do that, and it's a powerful one. Uh, sometimes, though, it leads us astray. Uh, we can manipulate it. Uh, wh- one of the most vivid examples, I, I describe it in my book, uh, my most recent book, uh, you, you're, you're probably too young to remember Alan Funt's Candid Camera. There are still snippets of it uh, on the interwebs on YouTube. You can, you can track them down. They're, they're marvelous little vignettes where he puts people in odd situations and watches what they do. Well, in, in this particular one, he announces that there's a job with incredibly high pay, incredibly undemanding uh, credential requirements, uh, short hours. You know, you'd, you'd be uh, ecstatic to have a job like this. So, of course, many people want to interview for it. And he books appointments. So the, what we see in the film is that uh, a candidate arrives. He's ushered into a waiting room and told to be seated. There are already four others seated there waiting. Uh, we, the viewer, know that they're confederates of Alan Funt, the, the candid camera, camera impresario. The new guy doesn't know that. So the film goes on about its way, keeps coming back. They're still sitting there. Nothing's happening, waiting. Finally, the camera zooms in on the the new guy and he's impassive as he's been all along, but then suddenly looks alarmed and starts looking around. The the camera pulls back and we see that the reason he's alarmed is that the other four have stood at no apparent signal. They're taking off all their clothing. Uh, And he looks more and more agitated as, as he watches the scene unfold, but then you can finally see a a look of resignation on his face. He stands up himself and takes off all his clothing. And the scene ends, they're all five of them naked, waiting for what comes next. Uh, Isn't that kind of like what it used to be like in Hollywood? (laughs) Well, when I saw this film, I said, no way on earth I would do that. Uh, But then thinking about it, you know, I, I already had a job I really liked. I didn't need, need this, this good job. If, if I were the, if I had a bad job, a really crummy job and, and had the prop prospect of landing this great job, what do I know? I know these four guys got there before I did. If anybody knows what the drill is, they do not, I don't know, know what comes next. They obviously think it's worth doing this. Uh, would it be rational for me to say, no, this is crazy. Uh, so I think you don't want to be too quick to judge somebody for having the impulse to follow what, what others do. And most of the time it works out okay. But when you're talking about how much to spend on a, on a house, I mean, now, now people are building houses with 30, 40, 50,000 square feet. Mm. 
if, if let's suppose all the biggest houses were 50,000 square feet, what do you think would happen if at the wave of a magic wand, they would all be only 30,000 square feet? Would the, the people who live in them be less happy? I, I think the one thing we can be most sure of in this big contentious literature about the determinants of human well-being is that the people who live in those mansions wouldn't be the least bit less happy if, they're, if they were all smaller by the same proportion. They'd be happier. It's less of a pain in the ass to keep up with all the details of managing a big property. Uh, the only reason they needed a big one uh, to the extent that they bought was that it was expected in their circle to, to live in quarters like that. When I moved to the Phoenix area and was looking for a house, I you know, ended up looking at houses that ranged quite a lot in their square footage and stuff. And one of the large houses that I looked at while I was walking through it, I was like, I couldn't find my children in this house. Like, I, I don't want to live in a house where like I lose everybody. Like, <laughs> I don't know if everybody's okay, <laughs> but it does seem like, you know, there are houses where, yeah, you would have no idea that, you know, there are other people living in them with you. <laughs> the, the point is there are other uses of the, of the money it takes to build so big. You know, mm -hmm. if we spent less on the wedding receptions, less on the cars, less on the, on, on the uh, special events, there would be money left over to spend on things that we know would make a difference to people. Mm. So this kind of brings us to, you know, really the central issue of this podcast, which is this zombification, right? Like this influence that we have that is not coming from inside us, is coming from somewhere else. And sometimes um, directs our behavior in ways that are not always in our best interests. And it seems like this, you know, influence from social others, from people who we think of as our peers um, is huge. And, you know, you've pointed out it can be a good thing, but it also, it, it seems like this big vulnerability, right? This like button that can be pushed by others who might want to change our behavior in order to move us in a direction that might benefit them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's clear that the things we believe uh, depend very strongly on what people around us, who are mostly people like us, believe. And uh, I'm just writing a, a foreword for a, a, a nice book by Cass Sunstein. And he talks about conformity in it uh, and conformative belief. Uh, what's true is that People in a group value the respect of their colleagues. They value group harmony. Somebody uh, speaks up in favor of an idea that you think is dubious. Uh, do you object? Do you voice your concerns about the dubiousness of this idea? Or do you remain silent? Well, uh, there are people who speak up, but in most cases, the impulse is to hang back, not to... Not to, to muddy the water with, with uh, dissent in a discussion like that. And then there, there'll be a second person in the group who was neutral about the idea. He heard the first person speak up favorably about it, and that's enough to tip him from neutral into positive, so he supports it too. And, and in that fashion, because you now have available evidence that people support an idea, uh, you can get what, what Sunstein calls an availability cascade that that in short order produces near unanimous support for an idea that really didn't have much support 
uh, on the merits. And, hmm. and we know that tens of millions of us believe things that are uh, demonstrably false. How do we know that? Because there are such large groups of us who believe diametrically opposite factual claims about the world. Uh, CO2 emissions cause warming. CO2 emissions don't cause warming. There, there are millions, tens of millions of people who believe both of those claims, and they're the opposite claims. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that part of this has to do with the sort of, you know, force of personality or charisma of people who are making the claims and that being a, you know, powerful influence, at least on the first few people? Yes, of course. Uh, the people who speak most confidently are most likely to, or more likely than others, to, to influence people in the group. If you're cautious, if you're timid about your view, you're less likely to influence others. Uh, now, if somebody really knows the right answer to whatever's uh, questions being discussed, uh, naturally that person will be more confident. And so it's not necessarily a, a bad heuristic to follow the people who are more confident. Uh, but they're not, they're, there are many people who are confident who don't know what they're talking about. And, yeah. and so uh, the initial conditions in these cascades are so important that there's just no presumption that you'll always move to the, the, the best equilibrium in these processes. Yeah. So, Robert, I have to say I really enjoyed reading your book, um, Under the Influence, and I would love to talk a little bit about um, the points you make about smoking and smoking behavior and that kind of like as a, a way of looking at many of the dynamics that can happen with peer influence and, and sort of the complexities of it, because, uh, you know, I love how you kind of bring us back to, you know, well, what are the overall effects on society of these peer influence processes on things that, you know, for example, have health outcomes like smoking. Right. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, we all kind of know this like general notion, right. That for example, seeing people smoke, um, can make it more likely that, uh, you know, somebody will take up smoking. But, you know, what does the research say about that exactly? And then how does that tie into sort of this bigger, these bigger societal issues, um, public health, et cetera? Yeah, smoking is, uh, is an example that I return to repeatedly in the book uh, because I think structurally it's exactly isomorphic to all the other examples I talk about, but it's the, it's the simplest and the, and the easiest one for people to grasp. And, and uh, I focus on it so strongly because I feel like if people uh, understand the essence of that example, uh, it's very easy to see how the same argument applies almost uh, step by step in the case of the other examples I consider. So, so yeah, it's worth, it's worth thinking about. Uh, I, I started smoking myself at age 14 uh, in 1959. Uh, my, my friends, many of them had already been smoking. My parents were both smokers. They didn't want me to smoke, but of course that, that seemed like an uh, odd view for them to express since they were both smokers themselves. I, I quit smoking uh, uh, my senior year in high school, which is unusual for a, a, a teenager to do. I read a book about how bad smoking was for you. This was even before the Surgeon General's report came out. 
Most people who smoke, though, uh, even in those days, uh, wished they didn't smoke. They, re they regret the fact that they started. Uh, and the, the main reason most of them did start is that they were in the presence of other people who smoked themselves. That was the, so if you're worried your, your kids will smoke, uh, most parents do worry about that. Uh, it, it doesn't help you to know uh, their traits of personality or character, really. What you really need to know is the proportion of their friends who smoke. Uh, and it's a, it's a huge effect. And there's no other effect nearly as big. So the, the best study of teenagers showed that if the proportion of your daughter's friends who smoke rose from 20 to 30 percent, she would become 25 percent more likely to become or remain a smoker. Uh, it's huge. Uh, and what happened was that we didn't regulate smoking, even though uh, we had an idea that it was bad. We didn't regulate it really until the 1980s. That's when we started taxing cigarettes heavily and putting bans on smoking in public places. We, we regulated it. Uh, I, I guess in the US, regulators are always reluctant to act. Uh, there's this don't tread on me uh, uh, spirit in the country. You're not, you're, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Uh, when we tell people they can't do what we want to do, we, we at least try to pay lip service to John Stuart Mill's harm principle which says that the only legitimate rationale for the government to restrict your liberty is to prevent undue harm to others. Uh, and even most libertarians accept that rationale. You're not allowed to come and hit somebody over head with a stick. Of course not. So we didn't take action against smoking until there were studies coming out of Japan that showed that exposure to secondhand smoke increased the risk of heart disease and cancer and other ailments. Uh, and, and that was the justification that we offered. And it, it turned out that uh, those studies were accurate. Uh, exposure to secondhand smoke did increase those risks, but it increased them by essentially a minuscule amount compared to the risk that you incur from actually being a smoker. Now, regulators didn't want to say, we're going to protect you against harming yourself. So we, we, we want to, we want to uh, tell you you can't smoke because it would be dangerous for you. No, John Stuart Mill said, no, you can't do that. I think actually that question, given what behavioral psychologists have learned in the meantime, since Mill wrote is more interesting than Mill had any way of realizing, you know, we have lots of people who are 50 who have rational reasons for wishing somebody had kept them from doing what the stupid things they did when they were 18 or 19. <laughs> so, so we're, we're different people at different points along the timeline. That's a, that's an interesting discussion to set aside for, for the moment. The real harm you do if you're a smoker, besides the harm you do to yourself, uh, which we may want to say isn't a legitimate grounds for regulating you is you cause other people to become more likely to smoke. That's the real harm you do if you're a smoker. And you say, well, it's their job to resist temptation. Okay, I'm sympathetic to this, the sentiment that motivates that objection. But what about the parents? You know, you invest so much of your life energy raising your kids to, to be healthy and prosperous uh, in the world. And, and seeing them become smokers is a huge injury to you. There's only so much you can do to to steer them away from smoking. Uh, and so if they're amongst people who smoke, you know, they are causing injury to you, injury to you that you can't escape uh, very easily by any unilateral step that you might take. 
And so why, why don't we count that as harm to others justifying regulation according to Mill's harm principle? I think the case is transparently clear and convincing. If, if somebody has a rejoinder to it, I'm still eager to hear it. I, I've been mm. asking audience when, audiences when I talk about this book, come and tell me about the, your counter argument and, and, and no one does. And it's, it's an easy argument for people to accept because I think most smokers don't want to be smokers anyway. And so it's, it's a congenial uh, step on the path to make people less likely to do something that they didn't want to do in the first place. Other things where they may be more, they're, they're more likely to really want to do those things individually, but think they shouldn't. The case is a little harder to grasp, but uh, it, it's the same case in, in every instance. Is smoking yeah. is smoking a true signal of sort of the things that make teenagers cool? You know, like a willingness to take risks. Like, is that like even when you think back when you were smoking, did you get social benefits from it? You know, that's that's a, a very interesting question, and it turns out that in some circles, uh, being a smoker as a as a teenager is a signal that you're cool. But in other circumstances, the kids who smoke are not considered to be cool. And that was the, uh, the, the key insight that enabled one of my former students and a co-author to study the determinants of smoking using a longitudinal sample of, of high school students that they followed for about a decade afterward. It turned out that if, if you were in a school they had social network data for the high schools. They could tell who the popular kids were and who, uh, who the less popular kids were. In some schools, quite uh, exogenously, it was the popular kids who smoked. In other schools, it was the unpopular kids who smoked or the less lower status kids who smoked. For more than a decade out from graduation, and, and that's as far as they could follow these these uh, high school graduates, if you were from a school where the popular kids smoked, you were more likely to become or remain a smoker. If you were from a school where it was the less popular kids who smoked, you were less likely uh, to become or remain a smoker. So it was a striking finding, uh, the, the, the durability of the influence of the status uh, slots occupied by smokers and non-smokers in high school uh, was really quite remarkable. Were there well, in the, oh. Go ahead. I was just curious, were there differences between the schools? You know, was there a, a in, beyond like, like were there any like socioeconomic differences between the schools where the cool kids smoked or the, uh, the, the smoked? their study depended upon the fact that uh, there were, exogenous differences in uh, whether it was the cool kids who smoked or the non-cool kids that smoked. I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what other factors they were able to control for in the study, but it was, it was uh, something that they could determine to their own satisfaction uh, that, that the, the, the question of who was, a who was cool and who was not cool and who was a smoker and who, who was not a smoker uh, were, were separable questions across those schools. Okay. So this makes me think about kind of going back to your earlier point that, you know, if you smoke one of the 
bad effects that you're having on the world is that you make it more likely that others smoke. Right. That that's going to much more be the case um, for someone who's, you know, who has high social influence, right? Like the popular kids in school yes, yes, or a celebrity, right? Um, so there's sort of this heterogeneity then about like, you know, how much, um, I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but something like that. It's like, I mean, you hold, I guess, just more influence over, you know, other people's health and well-being if you are someone that others are often looking to yeah. in that way. Yeah. So, so when some schlemiel doesn't wear a mask, when he, when he goes out uh, during the pandemic, that has a negative effect. But when uh, the president of the United States doesn't wear a mask, when he appears uh, in close contact with other people, that has a much, much larger and more damaging effect. And I think uh, is, is vastly more blameworthy. Yeah. Do you think there's a parallel here with sort of smoking behavior and not wearing masks? <clears throat> yeah, they're 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 both transgressive. So I I would be I haven't studied it, but I'd be surprised to to learn that that there was no link between the the, the traits that predict each of those those behaviors. No, I, I, I suspect there is. Hmm. And in terms of the the dynamics of influence is it is it sort of similar you think where you know the if you are someone who doesn't wear a mask that the the negative impact that you're having might actually be largely just that you're sort of normalizing not wearing masks or making others feel like they shouldn't be wearing masks yes i mean that is definitely an effect of anyone appearing uh in close contact with others not wearing a mask that that makes it seem less transgressive that others would do the same thing. So yeah, I, th uh, I, I always wear a mask, even in cir circumstances where anybody might see me, even though I'm way farther away uh, than any indication that it would even matter. But just, just as, an, as a, a public statement that I support the idea that when we're out uh, in, in public, we ought to be wearing a mask. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it, it's a clear effect that you have on other, other people when you model behaviors of that sort. Mostly people don't think about that when they choose what behaviors uh, to adopt. I, I know I certainly didn't think, oh, I, maybe I shouldn't start smoking because I might make others more likely to smoke. Uh, I imagine very few people do that. And the, the, the policy mes message of my book is that in general, as individuals, we have such a small impact on the overall social environment. So whether I wear a mask or not uh, is going to have a, a very, very small effect on other people's perceptions of the frequency with which people in general wear masks. And so uh, in ra rational choice theory, that means people won't give much weight to that. But the point is, if people did give weight to that, if they acted as if they cared about their effect on the social environment, that would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. And and my my uh, key point that I try to make again and again in the book is that uh, we've got all sorts of levers we can pull to encourage people to act as if they care about how their own individual behavior will help shape the social environment. And we want to we want to push them in directions where they'll 
create a social environment more likely to bring out the behaviors that we want to see in ourselves and, and, and more likely to dis- discourage the ones that we feel are harmful for us. It's almost like kind of taking responsibility for the fact that all of us are role models to some extent yes, for others. Right? Exactly. So, and, and, and you don't have to be uh, invasive of people's personal liberty to do that. So, all right, if I smoke, I cause harm to others. Does that mean that you ought to tell me I'm not allowed to smoke if I if I go off by myself somewhere and 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 smoke and don't harm harm anyone else? I shouldn't even be allowed to do that. The simplest solution uh, is one modeled after the economist solution to pollution. Uh, we don't want to have a, an absolutely pristine environment. Why not? Uh, some, some students ask, well, I wouldn't want to get all the dirt out, uh, uh, get it all the way down to zero, because the more dirt you filter out, the more costly it gets to filter the next little bit out. We take the low-hanging fruit first. And so we keep filtering dirt out until the cost of filtering the next bit out rises to the point where it's just in line with the benefit we would get from having things be a little cleaner. Some people say, oh, I don't believe that. If you don't believe that, then why aren't you at home vacuuming your apartment right this minute? Uh, dust is accumulating. Uh, your, your answer, which would be correct, is that, well, I've got other goals to pursue too. I'm willing to tolerate a little dirt in order to get on with my life. So, so let people smoke, but acknowledge that they do harm when they smoke and discourage them from smoking. Let them pay a penalty uh, when they smoke. Uh, we taxed cigarettes. Uh, that's exactly what we did with pollution. We taxed uh, SO2 o- almost overnight. The problem of acid rain disappeared from the news. Uh, we were trying all sorts of clumsy ways of regulating that that issue uh, with very little success, uh, taxing SO2 or equivalently requiring tradable permits in order to emit SO2, got rid of that problem. It got rid of the excess SO2 almost overnight. So So, with the right sort of incentives and tax structure, um, you can get that shit filter so it's not always full. (laughs) Exactly. And so so, uh, don't tell people they can't eat meat. Uh, Corey Berker uh, was interviewed on a podcast I was listening to recently. Uh, The host asked him why he recommended that people eat a little less meat. Why didn't he instead tell them to do as I do, become a vegan? And I thought Booker's response was interesting. He said, if I told people to be a vegan, virtually nobody would follow my advice. Maybe a, a tiny fraction of 1% would. If I urge people to eat a little less meat, maybe in time that might result in a 5 or 6% reduction in meat consumption, and that might build from there. So what we know is that if we were to adopt a carbon tax, uh, meat is very carbon intensive to produce meat. Meat has a big carbon footprint. That would make meat more expensive relative to plant-based foods. Uh, Most people eat meat because they grew up amongst people who eat meat. Uh, They continue to socialize with people who eat meat. They worry if they have people over for dinner and don't serve meat, they'll seem like cheapskates or, or whatever other concerns they might have. If we taxed CO2 or carbon, meat would become more expensive. People at the margin would shift slightly towards less meat-intensive diets. 
that would be visible to others. Uh, customs would shift gradually. The smoking rate didn't fall overnight when we tacked cigarettes. Uh, most people are, are very heavily addicted to cigarettes. A, a, a friend who had been a heroin addict told me that he had found it much more difficult to quit smoking than to quit heroin. Uh, so we tax cigarettes, people just go on smoking, most of them. But a few do quit. Uh, a handful of others refrain from starting. What that means is that every peer group that has people in it who either quit or refrain from starting now has a few less smokers in it. That means everybody in those peer groups is less likely to start smoking. So over time, they'll have fewer smokers. That's self-reinforcing, and we get a snowball effect over time. And uh, except for that kind of contagion effect, there's just no way we could explain why the smoking rate went from about half of adults down to 13% over the, the last couple of decades. It's an enormous uh, multiplier when we have social influence pushing in the same direction as these little changes in incentives. Yeah. And so if we, you know, go big picture for a moment and also come back a little bit to this idea of, you know, thinking of, you know, the influence that you have on others from your behavior, right? And, you know, you mentioned um, wearing a mask when you're out so that others see that you're wearing a mask. And, you know, when, when it comes to things like, you know, being vegetarian or, you know, reducing your carbon emissions by driving an electric car, right? There's, there's a lot of things, right, that people can do um, that can show to others that they care. Um, there, there's kind of been a sort of, I maybe would say cynical uh, view about some of this, that like doing those kinds of behaviors is, uh virtue signaling. So you're, you're, you're trying to show, right? Like I'm so great because yeah, I'm doing yeah. these things. So, so what's your, what's your view about this like virtue signaling idea and um, how does it mesh or not mesh with your kind of approach? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, th this was one of the issues that uh, stimulated the most intense engagement when I was giving talks about the book when it, when it first came out. Uh, the climate scientists uh, in particular have been divided over this issue of what they call conscious consumption, individual steps to reduce your carbon footprint. Some of the oil companies are urging people to reduce their carbon footprint, and I think there's been enormous pushback on that. Uh, they're, they're trying to say it's your fault that, that uh, we have carbon emissions it's, uh, and escape their own culpability in, in, in the picture. As an economist, uh, I was completely on board with that skeptical attitude toward individual steps toward solving problems like this because, you know, whether I buy a hybrid car or I, I, I uh, eat meat uh, is such a small part of the total picture that whether I do it or not uh, has no effect on the aggregate outcome that matters. And if, if others do it, then it doesn't matter whether I do it. Uh, so really what we need are powerful incentives to get everybody to do it. That's always been my view. Uh, working on this book uh, completely decimated my skepticism about the efficacy of individual action. If you take an individual step, others see you take that step. So there are really two things at, at work here. Uh, one is that the, the step you take, even though by itself would have no impact or, or no uh, significant impact, uh, 
that step isn't the end of the story, it's the first step in a chain. So in the case of solar panel installation, let's use that example, one of the seminal early studies showed that uh, a new adoption at time zero would stimulate a copycat installation after four months on average in the same zip code. This was in California. Uh, so now we've got two after four months. Those two spawn copycats of their own within four months' time on average. So now we, after eight months, we've got four. After just two years then, that first new installation, the one, the one that was just on the cusp, he'd, oh, the hell would flip a coin up, I'll install solar panels. Uh, now we've got 32 new solar panel installations, and it's going from there. Uh, and that's just in the same zip code. Every one of those families who installed them, they've got friends and relatives and other zip codes they talk to. And those links are more influential even than the links between neighbors. It's a huge effect uh, of what you do. The, the little thing you do that seems insignificant is hugely influential in many cases. Sometimes it'll fizz, fizzle out and not have much effect, but it can be enormous. But And if, if people are like, getting some social benefit almost kind of from showing off that they're doing it or that they're so good. Do you feel like that's problematic at all for this or that's fine? Like if, if people are, you know, getting that benefit of signaling how awesome they are that they're doing it. Uh, it, it it's true that people don't like others whom they perceive to be virtue sig signalers. Uh, so, you know, I, I would say rather than brag about something you did, uh, if you have a choice, brag about something that uh, your niece did or your neighbor did. Uh, uh, call attention to somebody else's good deed rather than your own good deed. But, but if you drive a hybrid car, you know, uh, the hybrid cars that look different uh, are, are more likely to stimulate others to buy hybrid cars than the ones that look the same as the regular cars. Uh, and I don't think you shouldn't buy a, uh, a hybrid car that looks different for fear somebody will accuse you of virtue signaling because the fact is that those cars do stimulate others to, to do the thing that you hope everybody would choose to do. The, the second reason, though, I abandoned my skepticism about conscious consumption, I think is even more important, which is that these steps, uh, they involve some sacrifice, uh, uh, Economists assume that people come into the world with fully developed preferences and identities and, 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 and we go from there. That's not the way things work at all, uh, according to anybody who, who's thought about it. Uh, so, so Aristotle uh, uh, said that uh, we, cut, we essentially become who we are by virtue of what we do repeatedly. We're creatures of habit. We, we, we obey the rules because we were afraid we would get punished if we didn't, and we got into the habit of obeying the rules, and now when we have a chance to break them, when no one's looking, we still obey the rules because that's who we are. If you take these costly steps to reduce your carbon footprint, uh, that either helps create in you or reinforce in you uh, a, a stronger identity as a climate concerned person. Uh, and, and that in turn makes you much more likely to knock on doors of candidates who favor the laws that I still feel we absolutely do need to adopt. And if we're going to solve the climate crisis, uh, we're more likely to 
give donations to their care, campaign chairman and the like. Uh, so no, it's not a question that that political collective action isn't necessary. Of course, it's necessary, but individual action is a step along the path to collective action. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting kind of paradox, almost right, where what you're looking at is how much of an influence there can be on our behavior from others or how much we can influence others right through our behavior. Um, But at the same time, there is kind of a focus on, you know, individuals sort of as decision makers, um, but they're also being influenced by others. So it's, it's sort of like, well, you know, are these dynamics a problem for our sense of our own will and autonomy? Um, are we really, you know, making these decisions um, kind of, you know, in a self-possessed way? Are we being unduly influenced by others? You know, how, how do you think this fits in with these questions about sort of autonomy and freedom of decision making? There, there's an economist I follow on Twitter and I clipped a, a tweet of hers last year. Uh, uh, she had somehow gotten onto a teenager's uh, website, and he had had posted this comment. Uh, uh, I, I've always, always uh, been told not to follow my peers, but I've never been told not to be a bad peer influence. Uh, it was, it was. Mm. Uh, it was it was an interesting thing because I think we do really focus on the negative consequences of peer influence. I know parents uh, when they they talk to kids about life are are universally inclined to say, "Don't do what the stupid kids at school do." You know, they, you've got to think for yourself. You've got to uh, be independent minded. Uh, you 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 wouldn't want your kids to go out in the world completely unconcerned with what others are doing. I think for reasons we discussed earlier. But I think uh, it is very helpful to be reflective and critical of how easily we all are influenced by what we see and hear others doing and and, and saying. Uh, but yes. but if you're if you're uh, if you're critical uh, in your in your approach to all of that, I think I think the fact that we're influenced by others is not something to be unduly uh, fretful about. So when we start nearing the end of each episode, I always ask this question, which is for you: What is the zombie apocalypse in this case of um, peer influence? Like if you take, you know, what we know about how we are influenced by others around us and you just turn up the volume on that, right? So we're, we're way more influenced than um, than we are in this reality. Uh, what kind of zombie apocalypse would that be where peer influence is a much larger factor in our behavior than it already is now? <sighs> Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, focused mainly on the climate crisis. That's the issue that I think poses the biggest threat. The most immediate threat, of course, is the, is the COVID pandemic. Uh, and so the, the news about uh, how close we are to a vaccine was very welcome. Uh, with or without that vaccine, a pandemic would eventually go away, uh, if only after millions and millions of people die from it, but it would eventually go away. The climate crisis will not go away. Uh, The climate crisis will be 
incredibly expensive to solve, but we have a, a, a vast amount of resources, uh, the, the, the funds available uh, that would be necessary to spend in order to parry the threat from warming would be on easily on the order of several trillion dollars a year. We're a 20, $20 trillion a year economy. Uh, if we had only $18 trillion a year to spend uh, instead of 20, we'd get along absolutely fine, especially if we cut back on the things that are do, doing the least good for us, uh, we would do absolutely fine. And so I think uh, the, the thing I fear most is that the, the political voices that say we don't need to do anything about this, that there's no real threat, that we can wait, uh, that those will, will summon enough uh, fellow believers that we will not act in time. I, I, I think that's really the biggest threat I worry about. And I think beliefs about what's possible, beliefs about uh, how easily we could actually get this job done will mat matter enormously uh, uh, in terms of the likelihood that we'll do what we need to do. And the, the way that all unfolds will depend enormously on how conversations influence one another. So when we're talking about you know, peer influence, it's not really just about behaviors like smoking or mask wearing or, you know, uh, driving an electric car. You can also just be talking about beliefs about the world or what potential futures might be available to us. Exactly. No, beliefs are so important because uh, beliefs generate action. Uh, if, if we think it's an important problem, we're more likely to act on it. If we think... Uh, it's not important, we'll, we'll focus on other things. Or if we think it's hopeless, then, then we won't act in that case either. So yeah, what we believe about the world is hugely important. And, and what we believe, we now know, depends uh, much more uh, on what others around us believe about the world than what's actually true about the world. Yeah, well, and that ties in then to other things that are happening right now, right? Like the rise of conspiracy theories and the sort of, you know, social contagion behind some of those. Yes. Yes. It's, it's alarming. Uh, plenty to be alarmed about out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not just that beliefs can lead to action, but they can also lead to inaction, you know, at times yes. when action is necessary. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the encouraging thing is uh, that we actually do have pathways to, to get through the, the biggest challenges if only we could talk about them and, and get the word out about them. I'd feel very optimistic about where we're headed. So what do you think are some of those pathways that are open to us for solving some of these issues? I've talked about how many of the things we spend a lot of money on don't uh, make any measurable contribution to our health or well-being. Uh, there's a large, very uh, argumentative literature on the determinants of human well-being, but there are a few key findings in it. Uh, and, and, and one is that if all the mansions get double in size, nobody gets any happier or healthier. 
if uh, there's all, a lot more cleaning to do, also. Yeah, if all if all, if all the celebrations get twice as expensive, nobody gets any happier or healthier as a result of that. Uh, if if the amount we spend on jewelry, cars, uh, and clothing all triples, nobody gets any happier because of that. If if I spend more and nobody else spends it more, then then maybe I get happier because I experience something that seems special because it's different from what others have. But if we were to steer resources away from those things, which we could very easily do by taxing consumption at a progressive rate, my, my longstanding proposal has been scrap the income tax. Instead, report your income to the tax authorities the same as you do now, then document how much you added to your savings each year. The difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that's how much you spent during the year. That amount minus a big standard exemption is your taxable consumption. No tax at all if it's, if that's a small number, but the bigger that number gets, the higher tax rate you pay on the next dollar you spend. We could steer all the dollars we need to decarbonize the economy out of useless activities, mutually offsetting activities, into those manifestly useful activities without having to demand painful sacrifices from anyone. It sounds like a, a snake oil uh, pitch, but uh, it's, it's, it, it's an argument that follows logically from uh, the, the, the clearest facts and evidence about the determinants of human well-being. Hmm. And what counts as consumption in that? Like anything you buy or like sort of, I'm, I'm curious in terms of policy, what what would that, how would that exactly work? Yeah, people uh, will quibble about whether charitable don- donations count as consumption, whether medical expenses count as dis- consumption. Yeah, we, we could exempt all those things if, 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 if we chose to, and that would be fine. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, if you, if, Interesting. if you buy a painting, does, is that consumption? Yeah, I would count it as consumption. Uh, pe- mm-hmm. people would argue, oh, no, it's an investment. No, it, it's consumption. Mm-hmm. So other than sort of, you know, these higher level policies around taxation, are there other ways forward that you think, you know, should kind of be on the table as something that we're considering, you know, either as a society or as individuals? You know, the, the, the trends that we've seen, it's really been since the, the early 70s, but the, the growth in income, unlike the decades after World War II, when incomes grew at about 3% a year for everybody, rich, middle, and poor, uh, almost all the income growth has been at the top of the income ladder in the years uh, since the early 70s. And it's, it's fractal. The higher up you go on the income ladder, the bigger the gains are. And... I think that's something that the people at the top have been determined to try to protect for themselves. They've got a lot of resources. They've lobbied successfully for lower tax rates. But uh, they're shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, They're driving their Ferraris on pothole-ridden roads in order to have Ferraris instead of Porsches, uh, when in fact, if they all drove the the lowly Porsche on well-paved roads, they'd all be happier. So I think... If that simple me- message could just get uh, wider uh, currency, uh, we, we could uh, sort of enact the social safety net measures, the, the, the universal health care measures, the, the universal uh, 
public service, employment, opportunity measures, all the things that we've talked about in an ideal social safety net, uh, we could pay for without having, having to demand that rich people sacrifice anything meaningful in their lives. It, it sounds like you're saying, you know, there are these sort of missed opportunities for investing in public goods um, that, you know, ultimately would have a much bigger impact on people's quality of life than the private consumption that they're doing. That's that's the simple story. Yeah, that, it's an old story. You know, John Kenneth Galbraith said the public sphere was neglected. Neglected, and we drive fancier and fast, fancier cars and live in bigger houses. He thought it was because advertisers fooled one another, uh, but people aren't as stupid as he thought. I, I don't think people are stupid. I think that what's attractive to the individual consumer uh, is not attractive to consumers generally. Generally, uh, if you have a bigger house than others, that can be satisfying. If everybody has a bigger house, that's not satisfying. You have control only over the size of your house, not over everybody else's house. To control what others do, we need to act collectively. And, and, and the simplest way to do that in many cases is through tax policy. Mm -hmm. Dave, do you want to jump in with anything? I don't know. I mean, I'm still, so I'm thinking about it in terms of, I mean, so the, the tax policy thing makes sense, but it, there are costs to there's given the fact that other people have expensive houses, right? There's real social costs to not keeping up, right? And as an individual, at an individual level, how do we balance those things? You know, how do we balance the fact that like, if I, if I have a smaller house, I can't have the same parties you know what i mean like i can't and no that's exactly the point david that the the incentives that you confront as an individual are completely different from the incentives and opportunities that we confront as a society so so i think even more than the question of whether you have room to have your parties if you're a parent your 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 job one is to get your kids into the best possible schools uh in every jurisdiction around the world, the better schools are in the more expensive neighborhoods. That's true even when the school budgets are exactly the same everywhere. Uh, and so your job, if you're the median earner, is to buy, if, if, you, if your ambition is just to send your kid to a school of average quality, you got to buy the average price house for your area. And if everybody's spending more, you got to spend more too, or else your kids go to the schools with the metal detectors out front and where the other kids score in the 15th percentile in reading and math. If we all spent less on building bigger houses, none of that would be problematic for us. We would be half of all kids would go to bottom half schools, no matter how much we spend on, on housing. That that's the, everybody stands up to see better. Nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. Individual interest and collective interest are not one and the same as they're often assumed to be by free marketeers. They're, they're often completely disjoint. When I advance my spot in the hierarchy, I necessarily push others backward in the hierarchy. So yeah, your incentives as an individual really are different. It seems like it happens a lot in circumstances where um, there's competition over things that are status related or, you know, for your children, for their status. Right. So then it kind of brings up the question of should we be free 
to compete with each other at all costs or not? All right, here, here's a good example to close with, I think. Uh, the George W. Bush administration uh, tried to sell the idea of privatizing Social Security. We're going to leave people's saving decisions up to them. Think about that. Uh, that that uh, proposal didn't generate much backing. It was never enacted. But imagine what would happen if we did enact it. If you're a parent and you have access to your retirement savings, uh, you'll face a choice. You could leave them drawing interest in the account where they are, or you could withdraw a significant proportion of them and use that money to bid on a house in a better school district. You might mm -hmm. say, well, it, 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 it wouldn't be good if we all did that, so you don't do it, but then would others refrain? Some people will withdraw their savings and bid on a house in a better school district. Uh, that will put pressure on others to follow suit. If you don't, then it's your kids who will be relegated to the inferior schools in the end. And so you'll follow suit too. And what will anyone have achieved? They'll all have insufficient income in savings to support them in retirement. And they will have succeeded only in bidding up the prices of the houses in the better school districts. Still half of all people go to send their kids to bottom half schools exactly the same as before. When we enacted the social security system, it wasn't optional. You got taxed, that money went to f finance the social security checks that retirees got. You couldn't take money out and bid on a house in a better school district. We don't wanna let people do that. There are some things we don't want to let ourselves do. Why? Because if we have the option to do them, we'll feel forced to do them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, mortgaging your future for something feels like it's the right thing to do, especially if your kids' futures are on the line exactly. too, right? And it, so. it's totally individually rational to do that. But collectively, we have good reason to try to look for ways not to lessen the pressure to do those things. Interesting. What do you think, Dave? What are you going to do? Are you going to try to extract all of your, uh, if you had the opportunity, would you extract all of your retirement income to buy a house in a better school district? I mean, I have, you know, I have, and no, like honestly, and, and the reason I did, and it's not even my kids were going to this school, right? My kids were going. So in Arizona, you can take your kids to um, sort of whatever school you want. Uh, and so I was living in the worst school district and dropping my kids off. And I was at a party and somebody was talking about how the test scores had gone down. And I heard one of the moms say, I wonder how many of the kids who are bringing the test scores down are out of district. And so I was like, screw this. I'm not going to be the kid with the, the parent with the out of district kids. And so I did. Yeah, I took out a big mortgage. And so, um, so I mean, on the one hand, I think... I totally understand what you're saying. It's a good argument for property tax, increasing property taxes and increasing sort of consumption tax sort of things. But it does mean there, there's really big, there's really big social costs to making these sort of wise financial decisions, right? Which I think can play out in the long run. You know, if you have a smaller wedding, then you might not, then the baseball player that you were hoping would show up might not show up, you know, and then 
that might no but i do think there's you're not going to get the signed ball as a wedding gift is the problem no that's yeah. why you're not free as an individual to make the decisions that you would like to see all of us make together right that, yeah that's the whole um, that's the whole point so rich people resist higher taxes what are they worried about uh there's no proposal on the table that would threaten their ability to buy what they need what any anybody might reasonably be said to need that's that's just not an issue what are they worried about they're worried about whether they'll be able to buy life's special amenities the luxuries that there aren't ever enough of to go around well how do you get those things you you have to bid against other people like you who also want them and what happens when your tax rates go up if you're a wealthy person your tax rates go up the tax rates of others like you also go up and as a consequence of that your relative bidding power is completely unaffected so the same penthouse apartments with sweeping views of the of the city end up in exactly the same hands as before it's a cognitive illusion uh, people don't realize that higher taxes, if they're wealthy to begin with, wouldn't hurt them, is that they've never experienced higher taxes in their lifetimes. This has been since World War II that the top tax, tax rates have been going steadily down. How do you estimate the effect of, of higher taxes if it's never happened to you for, before? You go to cognitive plan B, which is to say, all right, I know if I have higher taxes, I'll have less in, income to spend. Has that ever happened before? Well, yeah, uh, even in the most charmed life, there have been times, maybe you had a bad business year, a divorce, your kid got arrested, you had to hire an expensive lawyer, a house fire, something happened, you had less income. And th those occasions were all horrible. You have vivid memories of them, so you don't want that to happen again. But, but tax increases are unlike those things in a key respect. In those, in those instances I just described, your income went down, everybody else's income stayed the same. When taxes on the wealthy go up, relative purchasing power stays exactly the same as it used to be. So, so, so our intuitions are off, really, when it comes to thinking yeah, about... David's these. worried about what's going to happen to him because he's not taking into account if he spent less and others spent less than his position would well, be essentially well, let me, the same. Let me ask you this, because this is, I think, as I'm as I'm sitting here, I think there was a part where I was feeling a little bummed out, and the the thing that was bumming me out was sort of this feeling of powerlessness, right? Like where I was like, well, you know, considering I I sort of, even though we're not supposed to talk too much about our personal political views as ASU employees, but I think I vote as much in favor of pro taxes as I can, right? Um, but but let's say just hypothetically, given that. What else can I do, right? What else can I do to to solve what seems like a um, well for me a constant source of stress? You know, this sort of idea of oh my gosh, the housing market's so expensive. Oh my gosh, like my kids are they going to be able to afford a house? You know, it's scary, and I'm just and so so I guess maybe what I'm wondering is are there ways. Are there ways I can have an impact on, on this? Um, does that well, make sense? I think, I think it, it's helpful to begin with uh, to identify policies that you think would change the things that are causing you trouble. So think about the rising cost of the median house. Uh, 
the median house is vastly bigger than it used to be. It's about 50% uh, more square feet than it was in 1980. Uh, the price of it has gone up by more than 50%. Uh, the median wage earner in the U.S. doesn't earn uh, significantly more per hour in real terms than, uh, than in 1980. So why are the people in the middle spending so much more? It's exactly because people at the top are spending more. It's this expenditure cascade that we talked about earlier. People at the top have more money. Of course, they spend more. That's what everybody does when they have more money. People just below them travel in the same circles. They're uh, inspired by the, the, the bigger things they, they experience in the presence of the people at the top to build bigger themselves. So it cascades all the way down the income ladder. If the people at the top spent less, you'd feel pressure to spend less than you do now. That's the, that, and so if you're thinking about where to go with that, I, I vote for people who think people at the top ought to pay more rather than less in taxes. I, I not, not, because I, not because I'm uh, a liberal or conservative, because I think it would be in the interests of people at the top, in the middle, at the bottom of the income ladder if that happened. Yeah, I don't think I've, like before this conversation, I don't think I've ever given a lot of thought to the sort of ethics of property tax. You know, it's always seemed like, well, they are whatever they are. And and that seems to me like when you're talking about this consumption tax, one of the closer things that we have. And I do think that I am thinking, well, okay, I could start now talking to people about, oh, this is why it makes more sense to have higher taxes on cars, higher taxes on houses, higher taxes on these sort of luxury expenditures. Um, and so perhaps that's a way, perhaps that's a way I could be one of the people with solar panels in the neighborhood in this sort of <laughs> sense, you know? Um, just, well, we don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but I, I would steer you away from taxing specific things. Uh, we've tried that many times and Every time you, you tax one thing that you think of as frivolous, people switch to something else. Uh, so we, we taxed yachts, and so people uh, bought yachts overseas, which weren't taxed. We, ta <laughs> we taxed okay. uh, gold buttons. People switched to I carved ivory buttons. You know, all, all these specific luxury taxes have, have almost every time backfired. Interesting. What's what's better is to tax consumption expenditure at a progressive rate. That way, you don't have to argue about what's a luxury and what's not. Uh, so, if you're spending already five million dollars a year, we can say with some confidence that the next dollar you spend isn't on anything particularly essential. Okay. So can can I ask if that if the consumption tax is the going vegan of sort of restructuring the tax code what is the eating less meat you know what is the thing that we could sort of sell to people as a step in that direction you know i think already with the consumption tax it's unfamiliar you have to explain it to people people imagine the spectacle of having to save receipts for everything they buy in order to document how much they'd actually spent. No, you don't have to do that. So it's, it's complicated. Uh, if somebody said, uh, we'll have a higher tax rate on income instead of that, and I'll, and I'll give you that now, I'd say, all right, where do I sign? Mm. Makes sense. Yeah. 
this has been a, a really mind altering conversation for me. <laughs> I have to say <laughs> I'm, I've been under the influence for the last hour plus here. <laughs> yeah, it has for me as well. I think it's like, um, especially about sort of taxation and things like that. Um, I, I do have one other question real quick, going back to the smoking thing, which you sort of did touch on a little but if I was thinking like if I was going to tell my kids right so I've got a a son who is just about to turn 15 my daughter's just about to turn 13 if they're around their friends and their friends are smoking is there a way to is there a better way to say no you know cuz and is there a way to say no that like I always feel sort of like I would always feel uncomfortable like I felt like if I was saying, oh, I don't smoke, like how to sm- say it where it's not like I'm saying, oh, I'm better than you, you know, like, so is there, um, and, and I think you sort of touched on that with the veganism a little bit, but just to go back one more time. Um, yeah, you know it's, I mean? a, it, it, it's, it's a hard question because if you push too hard uh, in the direction of discouraging your kids from smoking, uh, that will backfire. They'll, they'll rebel, they'll, they'll try to assert them, their independence by be, being more likely to smoke than they would have been. I, I think uh, if, if, you know, I, I have four adult sons, none of them smoke, so I, I'm past that threat uh, now. But if I were facing it uh, the way you are, I think one, one step I'd consider uh, is to get on online and track down the New York quits ads. New York has a lot of the states with the tobacco settlement settlement uh, funded a, a, a public service announcement campaign to discourage people from smoking. And the ones that I've seen in New York are incredibly effective. There's, there's one of a guy with his adult children saying what he he really uh, uh, appreciates most about each of them, and then a, a nod to this grandchild, and then a, a voice of concern about this other kid who's got a problem coming up. Uh, and he said, uh, and, and and most of all, I'll miss them. Uh, he was uh, he still seemed okay when the video was shot, but he died two weeks later of lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then there are other. Uh, videos of, of shots of surgeons operating on diseased lungs. I mean, and, and just seeing the, the, the studies, nine, 94% of people who smoke say they wish they hadn't started smoking. They, they deeply regret having started. Uh, and, and, to, and to hear, when I heard from my friend that it was harder for him to have quit uh, cigarettes than to have quit heroin. You know, it's it, it's a path that if you go down can lead to a lifelong uh, a string of negative outcomes and the best and easiest way to avoid it is never take the first step along it. Yeah, don't let yourself get zombified in the first place. Yeah, yeah, no, I, but yeah. But if you try too hard to, to push them away from that path, you'll, you'll inadvertently lure them onto it. Yeah. Mm. And and also, I want them to be a part of the horde. You know what I mean. I don't want them. I don't want them <laughs> eating the brains, but I want the other little zombies to invite them. Yeah, sure. Out to the. Yeah, you you would not want your kids not to care what other people think. Yeah. So. 
but you don't want them to care so much that they sacrifice. Uh, no, it's their, their brains. It, it's a, it's a fine yeah. balancing act. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, Robert, thank you so much for sharing your brain with us. This was a really enlightening conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time. What a, to, what to a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for, for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to, to share your, your link to the, the podcast once it's posted. Lovely. Thank you so much. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And we would like to thank everyone who helped make this episode and all other episodes of Zombified possible, including the psychology department at Arizona State University, the interdisciplinary cooperation initiative at ASU and the president's office that supports that initiative, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics of Zombies and the Zombie Apocalypse. That's right. And keeping up with other zombies. And, uh, oh, and who else? Lots of brains. We have so many brains that help make this podcast. Tal Ram, who does our sweet sound. That's right. Uh, Neil Smith, who draws all of us and brings out our inner zombie. Yeah, brings out the brains in all of us. <laughs> he does. <laughs> uh, Lemmy, and- the creator of our song, Psychological. That's right. It keeps us moving. And uh, and everyone on the Z team who yeah, lets we you guys know about this. A phenomenal group of undergraduates and graduate students and researchers at all levels who help to make the podcast happen. They help transcribe the episodes. They do a lot of work on social media to get the word out. And um, they are just amazing. And right. so, yeah. speaking of social media... Oh, well, I was actually first just going to say to any members of the Z team, just know all the other members of the Z team are doing a lot of really good work. So you guys really need to keep up. And if you want to see what good work they're doing, go on social media. You can That's true. compare you yourself can to them. Yes. And the best jumping off point, because <laughs> we have a lot, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok. Uh, and you can find all of that. We're even on Facebook with your parents. Oh, wow. Look at that. Are we on MySpace and French? <laughs> no, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so where would be a good jumping off point? Where should they start? 
start at zombified.org and you can find links to our episodes. You can find links to all our social media. Um, and, uh, Twitter is kind of our, our home when we like link out to a lot of other things from Twitter too. So if you're just going to follow us one place or join us one place, I would say Twitter. That's right. And I also want to say for people who like reading things longer than tweets, they should check out, uh, Robert Frank's books. He's got a lot of great books. Yes. Including his newest, which we were talking about today. Um, yeah, that's called Under the Influence. And I've I think I've read all of his books and they're all awesome. So, you know, don't just stop there at Under the Influence. <laughs> okay. I won't. Not since you did it. <laughs> <I'll go. laughs> and you guys at home, then you guys should buy copies and then you should tell your friends to buy copies as well. You can be the you can be the leader in your group. Be the cool that's friend. Right. So. <laughs> You can also be a leader um, by buying awesome zombified merch. We've got t-shirts, we've got stickers, and we have a whole bunch of amazing merchandise for Channel Z as well. Speaking of which, if you haven't checked out Channel Z yet, every Monday we do live shows um, on all sorts of topics, uh, and you can join in, comment, ask questions, and be a part of this really cool community that we're creating um, in this kind of weird time that we're in right now. That's right. So also, also while we're pushing books, Athena has a book. We should <laughs> I do. I have a book. Yeah. It's called the, the cheating cell. Um, yeah, it's about so. cancer. It's, I mean, it's not good. the most uplifting topic, but, but it turns out that like, you know, cancer is something that we share susceptibility with like all multicellular life. So, so, you know, we're not alone. Yes. Every, so. every multicellular organism has to deal with cancer, but why are we talking about cancer now? <laughs> we're talking about books we're talking about how everyone's friends have books and so our listeners need to go buy a bunch of books that's um, right so, uh, yeah but okay and in the apocalypse you know you're gonna be bored if you don't have a bunch that pile of books sitting in the corner that you haven't read yet like you haven't read it yet but once the apocalypse hits and you know the computers don't work anymore and you can't be scrolling twitter you're gonna have something to have to have something to do right also so. They're good gifts if you're going to a really expensive wedding. You know, you can bring a pile of books. <laughs> That's so. right. <laughs> um, all right. Do we have other things we normally say when we sign off, or do we just talk about books until people um, stop listening? We usually just ramble on at the end, because um, by this point, nobody really is listening anymore anyway, so it doesn't matter what the fuck we say. <laughs> I assume people listen to us to fall asleep, and so, you know, they just like our voice. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Buy books, buy merch, find us on social media, um, join us on Channel Z. We will um, be very, very happy to see you there, have you there. Um, we we want your brains, basically, is, is what we're saying. That's true. Send us comments and, and we'll read the stuff you guys write. So, yes. Yeah. Oh. All right. <laughs> okay. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. Crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way I do.